Hi guys, welcome back to Elsa and Ria's Emergency Room Podcast. My name's Ria, and here's my co-host Elsa. Hi guys, my name's Elsa, and this week we're reading Chapter 6 of Dr. Sharon Wallum's book, Survival of the Sickest. The title of this chapter is Jump into the Gene Pool. So this chapter starts off in a really interesting way because Dr. Mawalam explains the story of the first vaccine. So there was a scientist who noticed that those that who were infected with cowpox, which was a mild infection, somehow seemed to be resistant to smallpox, which was much worse of an infection. So he decided to test his hypothesis by infecting several boys with cowpox and then, I guess, monitoring them to see if they ever caught smallpox. And his hypothesis ended up being correct. And this led him to the foundation of how vaccines are created. You take a relatively harmless version of the virus that we want to vaccinate against and inject it into the person. And so they start creating antibodies, which will work for the virus that we want to vaccinate against, which is much more harmful. And also what's interesting about this is that the word vaccine comes from the Latin name for cowpox, which is vaccinia, and cow is vaca in Latin, which I never realized, but I don't know, very interesting. Yeah, the origin of words are pretty interesting, and I feel like they could uh, tell a lot of history about how the word came about to be or what the invention or whatever it is actually is. Yeah, I wish I took Latin because I feel like there's so much to learn from root words and it could help in probably a lot of fields, but I know especially the medical field. So then Dr. Mullen talks about how human beings start. We start just like bacteria starts with one cell. And this cell multiplies and grows, um, and with the help of our father and mother who donate their sperm and egg, we become a zygote and produce millions and billions of cells that have the genetic instruction to build our human being. So we have about 3 billion pairs of nucleotides. Those pairs of nucleotides are called DNA base pairs. Of those DNA base pairs, there's assumed to be about or less than 30,000 genes. So the genes are organized um, in groups of 23 chromosomes to make a total of 46 chromosomes. And so 23 of the chromosomes come from the mother and the other half comes from the father. And the 23rd pair is the sex chromosomes which is a matched pair, and they determine the sex of the child. Um, So XY is male, XX is female. So there are dominant receptive traits for the mother and father. For dominant traits, both of the parents have to contribute genes that would show the trait. So every cell in our body contains the same DNA. So it's two complete sets of chromosomes with all the genes that uh, have all the instruction you need to build every type of protein and every type of cell. So that little cell has everything you need. And this is so crazy to me because later on he says how our toenails have the code to build brain cells and our brain cells have the code for toenails and fingernails and blood cells. 
and literally everything in your body. So something as insignificant as your toenails has the capacity, or not the capacity, but the instruction it needs to build brain cells, which is so important to us. Isn't that insane? Yeah, I think especially now that stem cell research has been catching more attention, um, it seems like this could really be a big part of the future of science. And I know it's not perfect, um, and obviously there are a lot of ethical issues surrounding it, but I do think that if we were able to be on the right page with everyone, and then um, it could really help in terms of regenerating parts of organs that have been lost. Yeah. I think it'll help a lot of patients in the future, especially with um, surgeries and organ donations. And I guess the larger point of this chapter that Dr. Moalam wants to make is how our DNA um, isn't completely ours, if that makes sense. A third of our DNA is actually from viruses. And so our evolution hasn't only been affected by viruses and bacteria and other pathogens from the outside by forcing us to adapt to them. But also, if we have been infected, it's affected our genome right from the inside. Saria, are you saying that we have DNA from viruses in our system? It appears so. Um, It appears that, I mean, he goes into it more towards the end of the chapter where he makes his whole point. But viruses have this ability of integrating their genetic information into our genetic information. So then next, Dr. Mom talks about how mutations are caused by a lot of different things, such as radiation or powerful chemicals. So powerful chemicals include stuff like cigarette smoke and other carcinogens. Um, So the sun can even cause mutation. And that's not just by giving a skin cancer, but overall, like globally, it can uh, cause mutation because every 11 years, uh, there's sunspot activity peaks. And so that means there's increased solar radiation that explodes from the sun. And because our Earth has a magnetic field, a lot of this is blocked off and we can deflect it. But because uh, as a society, as a civilization, we've been ruining the ozone layer, some of the solar radiation can come through and uh, make a huge impact on the Earth. An example of this is in March 1989, when There's a huge power surge because of a peak in sunspot activity. And so that left more than 6 million people without power in parts of northeastern United States and Canada. And so what happened is the sun gave off so much energy that literal satellites were knocked out of orbit. Garage doors were just opening and closing in California. And so many people, millions of people, were treated to a version of the northern lights in places such as Cuba. So Dr. Sharon Moalam suspects that this increase in sun exposure leads to the flu pandemics that tend to follow right after. So now the reason for this 
um, he explains by explaining two kinds of mutations. So we have antigenic drift, which is when the mutation occurs in the DNA of the virus. And then we have antigenic shift, which is when the virus acquires new genes from a related strain. Now, these two mutations are caused by things such as sunlight. And, you know, that's what what occurs during the sunspots. And also, these mutations make it so that the body isn't really able to recognize the virus and isn't really able to make the antibodies to fight it off. And when there are no antibodies to fight it off and people are really struggling and it becomes more fatal, that's when you have big situations such as pandemics. And so he believes that these flu pandemics were essentially caused by the sun and it's because of these mutations that couldn't be controlled. So back in the 1800s, when evolution was still being worked out, um, there were two main theories. Now, we all know of Charles Darwin, the father of evolution, and he believed that the traits that appear in offspring, the traits of an offspring come from their code, their DNA. There was another theory going around called inherited acquired traits. And twins in layman's terms, I'll use an example. So if I were to dye my hair red, this theory would say that my child would be born with red hair if I got pregnant while I had my hair red. And now we kind of think of this as ridiculous, but back then they weren't so sure. And the point of Dr. Moalam bringing this up is actually to give it some credit because in a certain situation or in a certain way, this might be true. And he gets into that later. Then Dr. Moalam spends a bit of time discussing transposons, which he calls jumping genes. But to make it short, basically transposons are genes that insert themselves into different parts of the DNA during times of stress in order to create a mutation that might be evolutionarily beneficial. So this is a quote from this chapter about the jumping gene. A recent study demonstrated just how much difference a jumping gene can make under the right conditions. A jumping gene in one line of fruit flies turned the line into semi-superhero fruit flies with the ability to resist starvation and withstand high temperature, as well as a life expectancy that was 35% higher than usual. Then Dr. Malone goes on to talk about how this is a genomic response to internal or environmental stress that cells can't handle under their existing setups. Then the proofreading mechanism is suppressed and the mutations aren't allowed to continue or further themselves and blossom and so natural selection allows the adaptive mutations over the maladaptive mutations to uh, go into the future generations and so that's how we have evolution and then Dr. Wallen talks about how these jumping genes aren't just observed in time to stress but they also um, can sometimes overtake other genes So these overtakings or jumping of other genes aren't random. It's uh, it's for a beneficial effect. But researchers had a tough time believing that organisms could just evolve on command almost. Or they could employ this jumping gene process. But later on in the 1980s and 1990s, a study was done on E. coli bacteria and... Normally, E. coli is lactose intolerant, but 
when put in an environment where no other nutrition was found besides lactose, the E. coli adapted and made this part of its diet or its nutrition. And when the study was repeated, it showed that not only was the mutation to digest lactose created, but also other mutations arose as well. And this came to be known as hypermutation. And although there still needs to be a lot of work and evidence recorded, hypermutation seems to be an up-and-coming aspect of science. I wonder what we could mutate or adapt to in the future. An interesting point he brings up is the Wiseman barrier, which essentially states that mutations that occur in somatic cells can't be passed on to germ cells. However, mutations that occur in germ cells can be passed on to the infant's somatic cells. However, the one exception that Dr. Malalam is kind of catching on to um, is with viruses and how some viruses or retroviruses might be able to kind of cross this Weizmann barrier and carry DNA from the somatic cells to the germ cells. And this would mean that mutations or adaptations could technically be passed on to future generations. Although this might not prove the fact that red hair can be passed on to my children, um, it may mean that if cancer was not previously in my genetics, but through smoking and bad habits, I acquired cancer, maybe it means that possibly I could give that to my children and therefore cancer could be incorporated into, into my genome. So this could be why cancer is genetic, right? Like, uh, in a previous episode, we talked about how my family has a history of colon cancer, so this could be because, or this is because of a mutation in the colon cells, and that's being passed on through each of our generations. Yeah, essentially. So jumping genes are really active in the early stages of brain development, and so that means they're really important to us. So every time the jumping gene moves around or inserts a change into the DNA, it's technically a mutation. So this helps create variety and individuality, so it makes our brain unique from everybody else's. So because our immune system is constantly making antibodies for the new viruses that come with evolution, we have such a variety of different cells in our immune system. And so everybody's body has different antibodies because of the different viruses we're exposed to or our ancestors were exposed to. And so different people can fight off different viruses while other people can't. So an example of this is a group of teenage boys that were given the cowpox virus and how they were essentially immune to smallpox. And so this just shows how because their bodies were able to make antibodies against cowpox, which is structurally very similar to smallpox, the antibodies were able to fight off the smallpox virus. People who weren't exposed to cowpox like the boys were don't have this advantage, and so when they contracted the deadly smallpox, they died. And once we develop antibodies, we always will have those antibodies. It's not like we can use them once and then we have to remake them or be re-exposed to the virus. Um, our bodies 
now know how to make that antibody and we will always have it. As I mentioned a bit earlier, viruses have the ability to integrate their genetic information into our genetic information. And this was thought to be junk DNA or non-coding DNA. And the reason they actually stopped calling it junk DNA is because they realized that it did have somewhat of a purpose. And this was that a large portion of it was actually made up of viral DNA. Specifically, 8% of the human genome is composed of retroviruses and other viruses that are housed in our DNA. They are called HERVS, or human endogenous retroviruses. And the research into this field is just beginning to pick up. But scientists are thinking that these HERVS, I don't know if it's herbs for short, um, but they're, they're playing a role in our health because they're being passed down from generation to generation, which is kind of breaking that Wiseman barrier that we talked about. And it might not be a bad thing. For example, one study showed that a particular herb played an important role in the construction of healthy placenta. But then also you have the negatives, which is that it seems to be connected with psoriasis. And the way that these viruses integrate their DNA into the human DNA is through the process of um, reverse transcription. And funny enough, that same process seems to be what these transposons use in order to move their DNA from one segment of the genome to another. So it might be that these transposons descended from viruses. Well, Dr. Mo leaves this open-ended and leaves the readers wondering, do retro-jumping genes descend from retroviruses? Yeah, so a lot of this chapter was just introducing certain topics because a lot of the research isn't there yet. But it's definitely interesting that this could be the future of science. Um, and I think Dr. Moalm did a good job of trying to explain how this could potentially be something big. And by the time we're medical professionals, I can't wait to see how much of the open-ended questions like the one we just asked right now will be answered. All right, guys, thanks for hanging in there with us today. We'll see you next time. Bye.